Welcome to another episode of the Drawn to Scale podcast. I'm Pablo Cortez. Today's guest uh, is Paul Ortega. Uh, Paul is a landscape designer, educator, and co-founder of the Desert Horticultural Society of the Coachella Valley in Southern California. His work has had a big impact on desert landscape and desert communities from how these unique and delicate landscapes perform and how they are cared for. Paul, thanks for taking the time to join us. How are you? Great. So thanks for giving me a few minutes to chat about something that I really love. Yeah, of course. Um, and actually, uh, we had put out a call for guests, if anybody can recommend someone. And there was a Cal Poly student that reached out and recommended you take a look at, you, at some of your work. And uh, yeah, so now here we are. And uh, I think we can start off with one of our first sort of topics and questions for you. Um, since you are in the desert, um, what are or were maybe continue to be the biggest challenges for water conservation in the California desert environment uh, in terms of infrastructure, community demands, and the legislative process? Well, that's, that's kind of a big question, but, uh, you know, all the, all desert communities are, are unique. You know, Las Vegas is different from Phoenix is different from Palm Springs, which is primarily where I work. Um, the greater Coachella Valley. And even within the Coachella Valley, the communities can be quite different in terms of the demands from clients uh, for landscape design and, and landscape services, as well as those demands, how they translate into uh, demands on the, uh, on the water supply. Uh, and I, I, I'm in sort of a unique situation, I guess, or position, given that I'm also a director of one of the seven water agencies located here in the Coachella Valley. Um, uh, so, uh, so I have sort of a background in, on, on the infrastructure question as well and, and what's coming down the road. Um, you know, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone here in California or the West Coast or the Western half of the United States that we are in a third year of a drought, um, coming off of a drought that happened not too long ago. Uh, so attention to how water is used in the landscape, particularly here in the desert, is extremely important. Having said that, and having done this for 20 years here in the Coachella Valley, or almost 20 years of, of doing landscape design with really a focus on, on desert plantings and, and what I would call desert adapted plantings, which are typically plants that come from other deserts, maybe not necessarily ours. But the biggest challenge is the lawn. I don't, and I think that's probably true throughout California and, and other places in, in the Western United States and even other parts of the world. The lawn is such a critical uh, sort of leftover of an other time and era, but it's still very prevalent here. And, uh, you know, we have a lot of folks, at least in my the practice, which is mostly in the Palm Springs area, but in other parts of the Coachella Valley where a lot of people don't they don't they weren't born and raised here they come from another place and they typically come from another place that's used where they're used to having a big front lawn and and lots of shade trees and and flowers and things like that and it's not that you can't have those things here in the desert you just have to do it in a different way and uh so that's that's probably the biggest challenge not only in terms of my practice in in getting people to sort of understand that they can still have a lush and beautiful garden, but maybe it's not like the one that they left behind in Chicago or Seattle or San Francisco or even Los Angeles. 
Um, and, you know, that indirectly that does translate back to the infrastructure. I mean, as a director of the water agency here in Palm Springs, um, you know, we have to build to that. We have to build to that demand uh, in a way that uh, sometimes maybe doesn't make a lot of economic sense, particularly when you understand what's coming down the road. I think, um, you know, this is going to be a very interesting summer for, for the people in California and I think people here in the desert, too. Again, each community is different. Um, communities get their water from various different sor various sources. Sometimes it's all surface water. Sometimes it's a combination of surface water and an aquifer. Maybe there's a, a recycled water component. Um, but some of our, our sister water districts outside of the desert are, are very heavily invested in uh, water from the state water project, which basically takes Northern California water and distributes it throughout the rest of the state. And um, that's a real problem right now. If you're a water agency that's really heavily dependent on that, or that's a huge part of your your source, um, it's going to be a tough it's going to be a tough summer. It's going to be a tough few years. And we're noticing we notice that even in the here in the desert, our water agency is also a member of the state water project. Um, but we have an aquifer to fall back on, so we have a little bit of a buffer. And I think you know that's the other challenge too. People say, oh, we have this giant lake of water underneath us, and yeah, we do, but we have to we have to take care of it, and we can't just we can't overdraw on it. I mean, that's the problem we've had in Central California, in the Central Valley, and Sacramento Valley, and that's what the state is trying to rectify that. But it's going to mean making some big, heavy choices. Um, and when this summer, when we go into the next straight stage of the drought, which the governor is basically expecting by the end of May, um, it's going to mean not watering your lawns in the middle of the day. Now. You and I know probably that makes sense anyway. <laughs> Don't water your lawn in the middle of the hottest part of the day. But drive around my neighborhood and drive around almost any neighborhood in Southern California and I bet that's what you'll see happening. So, so those are some of the challenges getting to people to really start to take seriously how they, how they build a garden, how they build a landscape and how they maintain it in a way that they're gonna have to think a little bit differently about. Does that thought process that thinking differently uh, about how you um, design your landscapes in a desert environment, um, does that carry over to the um, the agency portion? Like, is it, does the agency taking steps to, I don't know, I, I mean, obviously advocate for less water usage, but do they have any kind of program in, in set that people follow? It's probably, I would gather it's true in a lot of places throughout the state. And I can only really speak about, you know, my experience in also California, but um, there's a lot of grant money out there, uh, which our agency takes advantage of. It comes, some of it comes from the state, some of it comes from non uh, nonprofit foundations, some of it comes from, actually some of it comes from um, businesses. Um, but in any event, we are constantly looking for new sources of grant money that we can use to um, encourage our, 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 our users, our water users here in, in the desert to replace that front lawn with something else. <laughs> something else that's still gonna provide beauty and green and flowers or whatever it might be uh, in a landscape, but doesn't rely on the, the volume of water uh, to, it's required to maintain, maintain a, a lawn. 
And, and one particular aspect about the desert, which is a little bit unique to maybe some other communities, is we have this cycle where we have two kinds of lawn. We have a summer lawn, or I should say a seasonal lawn, which basically is sort of October to about now. And that is a perennial rye. And then we have a summer lawn, which is Bermuda. And in, in order to get that, we, you know, the thinking is that people want to see green lawns all year round. Well, if you live in the Northwest or you live in the middle of the country, your lawn is brown in the wintertime. <laughs> but, but somehow that doesn't have it apply here. And so there's a lot of water that goes in doing that changeover, a lot of, a lot of labor, a lot of inputs, uh, a lot of time uh, gets spent on making that happen every year. And that's something that we're actively discouraging. Um, we're kind of at that, still at that stage, figuring out how we're going to actively discourage from people from doing that. Um, and and one of the one of the things that's going to happen when we go into the next stage of the drought emergency, which is what I'm I'm fully expecting will happen, is that people will not be able to water their lawns in the middle of the day, and that's going to that's gonna, that's a change in a mindset that I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure how people are ready for that, uh, but but we as an agency are pushing conservation by offering rebates to replace your turf, by by requiring you very soon requiring you to change the timing of when you can water your lawn, um, the days that you can water your lawn. As we get further and further into the drought, there are other other uh, stipulations for that, and others and other ways of saving water too. Uh, changing out the sprinklers to more efficient sprinklers, offering rebates for that, offering rebates for washing machines, you know, those kinds of things. But you know, that happen inside the house as well. But here in the desert, most of the water use happens outside the house. So the focus, the big bang for the buck is making it happen in the landscape. So the, 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 the combination of, of uh, rebates, uh, for for turf removal or replacement for more efficient irrigation uh, nozzles as well as um, ir uh, smart controllers as opposed to the old manual uh, analog controllers and 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 then finally in terms of um, uh, um, what I want to say uh, ordinances against doing certain things as the drought gets worse um, to help us uh, maintain at least some level of, of water that we can supply to our customers just for their everyday living, you know, for health and safety. I'm curious if the desert water agencies, obviously they follow the state guidelines as far as the, the model water regulations, right? The, those guidelines. Um, do, do, do desert agencies have any sort of additional guidelines that further restrict that or is it mainly is it more following along those standard state guidelines? Well, you know, you think they're, they're in in so-called normal times when we're not in a drought situation i would say that the agencies tend to stick with you know sort of the basic state guidelines as you mentioned pardon me but um a couple of years ago all the water agencies across the state um were required and are required to develop and maintain what's known as a drought emergency schedule and right now the state is a drought level one drought emergency which doesn't mean a whole lot really in terms of at least as it as it impacts the desert community and the reason that each agency is developing their own is so 
the, the understanding is, unlike in the last drought where it was sort of a top-down approach, this is what everyone's going to do. Everyone's going to save 30% or whatever the number was. This is more like, well, what can you do in your communities to secure, make sure that you still have a, uh, an adequate water supply? And as the drought gets worse, what else are you going to do? So each agency and the sister agent, our six sister agencies here in the desert, all worked on this together so that before, you know, one agency might be saying one thing and then, you know, another agency might say another thing. And, you know, there's a street in between and one is in one agency and one's on the other side, you know. So your neighbors are even having to do different things. So we decided let's, let's coordinate it this time so that we're all saying the same thing each time we go into the next level of a drought. So it's, it's intended to sort of customize it to the needs of a particular community in terms of what they have available and what they can do. So, um, you know, now, now, we're, now that we're actually having to activate that plan uh, based on the current uh, environmental situation, uh, you'll see that we will start to deviate from that standard. I think, um, again, we're going into a stage two. It's, it's not the worst case scenario. There are six levels of this plan. Um, and uh, it will mean, you know, again, it will mean people giving up some green, some green lawns. Um, but for the greater part, greater good of the community, I, th I think that might not be a bad thing if we can look at it as a, as a, as a, a small sacrifice to make to uh, still provide water for health and safety and still maintain our other plantings, our trees that are providing shade to buildings and uh, recreational areas and, and that sort of thing. So it's not complete, not completely walking away from the the norm, but um, but but applying more pressure. I think is is one way to look at it. Got it. Cool. Very cool. Um, maybe change uh, shifting gears a little bit. Um, you've had a, I don't know if you can describe it as a non traditional sort of career, um, but you did have that academic path into where, and then you made that sort of shift into the 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 desert environment sort of living and um advocacy right um maybe you can kind of share a little bit about how that got started and how you went about that two things that sort of happened at the same time i guess um you know it was uh i had very i you know my my background is very uh is not you know i didn't study landscape architecture i didn't formally study landscape design um I, I took a path where I uh, was really working in a corporate environment for a very long time. Uh, one time, a, a long period for a global telecommunications company and another period where I was working for a, a, a startup company in San Francisco that was, um, was our parent company was in Europe. And, and then 9-11 then happened in you know September 11th, 2001. And... Um, I think I had a real hard look at like kind of where, what was I doing with my life? Was I happy living in San Francisco? Was I happy doing the kind of work that I was doing? And the answer was, I probably could do better. And that was about the time, the same time coincidentally that I was looking at purchasing a house in the desert and with the intention of it being maybe a part-time residence, like so many people do, um, at, or were doing at that time, and then came here a few times and really fell in love with the community and started thinking 
very quickly, like, how could I change gears? Uh, so within a few months, had moved here full-time, uh, had moved to the desert full-time, and really just walked away from the corporate thing altogether and thought, what do I really want to do? And I, one thing I've loved ever since I was a small uh, a kid, uh, I really loved plants. And so I knew it had to be something that had to do with plants. And I loved working with plants and, and, and building my own garden and, and helping friends with theirs. And so I thought, well, maybe there's something there. And uh, so I, I, I took a, 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 I did a six month stint at the Living Desert, which is a botanic and botanical garden and zoo here in the desert. Uh, been around since the early 70s, um, advocates for desert plantings, using more desert plantings in our, in our environment here. And our landscapes and uh, got some great great uh, it was a great hands-on education and I started uh, you know, learning what kind of plants people were using what plants were available I had the the the, the person that I worked for was this a wealth of knowledge on desert plantings and, de and desert adapted plantings and started taking some classes at our local community college uh, took some classes at uh, at the um, a branch of the UC Riverside which is here in the desert. And um, yeah, that was sort of how it happened. Very kind of not really that planned until I was in it. <laughs> and then one day I was like, hey, maybe I should do landscape design. <laughs> kind of uh, kind of rolled into it, right? Once you, uh, once you started. Uh, it's been a, it was, uh, yeah, not, not exactly how I planned it to be when I got here, but soon realized that that was, uh, it was, an, it was something that I felt like I could really be uh, make a big impact. Um, there weren't a lot of people at that time advocating for doing the kind of work that I do, using uh, really using, focusing on desert plants uh, to create these landscapes and, um, and being very mindful too, not only of the water issue, but of the other inputs that go into it, um, using less fertilizer, using less pesticides, using less labor actually in the long run to maintain that and at this and also providing a, in a small way a replacement for the habitat that continues to be lost in the desert there's so much growth out here in the last since i've moved here you know so much loss of habitat um, i think it's hard sometimes for people who don't know it, the area that well or who kind of just come in and visit and then leave to really understand that that open desert that they see out there is supporting a huge diverse uh, community of plants and animals. Um, but you do, it's hard to, you know, it's not a verdant green forest or a rainforest. It's a, it's a different look, it's a different environment. And sometimes it's hard to understand that that's, there's still a lot of life out there. And, and so by taking that away and putting in a housing development, you're, again removing the opportunity for plants and birds and insects and lizards and and mammals that live in that same community um, so i'd like to i'd like to encourage it's encouraging when i have a client who says you know i want to attract pollinators or i want to attract reptiles or i want to attract you know small birds or whatever it is and it's a it's such a pleasure to work with a client like that because in some small way they're still making a contribution uh for that for what's being lost yeah despite the building they're still making an effort to keep it somewhat desert what desert like 
Yeah, I think we're coming up on the on the end here, uh, Paul. Um, I do have one more question for you. Um, are there any sort of examples that you can uh, give? Maybe people can, people can visit or look up of built desert environments that are thriving and can be seen as those examples of how to properly design and implement in in the desert environment. Yeah, there's I mentioned already the the living desert, um, and I think that's a wonderful place to visit. Um, you know, it's something that uh, is really geared towards learning for, you know, really young people, tod toddlers, uh, young, young children, all the way through adults. And I think there's just that what I love about the living desert and uh, where it has a real special place for me is that not only having worked there, but just seeing the, 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 uh, the, the attention to education that happens in that place. Uh, towards um, uh, desert plants, and they, they've created these different desert environments, all northern, all North American uh, uh, and South American deserts, if you will, and and now now moving more towards there's a, more of an Australian and in an African desert environment that they've created with those kinds of plants, um, which are all plants that we can use in our own landscapes, you know. So that's help, you know, when you can see it in person. That's a great thing. Uh, and then the, the city of Palm Desert, which is um, here in the Coachella Valley, uh, not too far from Palm Springs, um, they've long had a, they've long advocated for the use of desert plants in, in public landscapes as well as commercial landscapes. Um, and so they have, they have a, a seven acre garden that they've created right at the end of their sort of very posh uh, shopping district called El Paseo and it's a seven acre uh, garden called the Eric Johnson Memorial Garden and uh, it is probably one of the loveliest examples of a public um, public garden uh, municipal garden if you will that has uh, just amazing kinds of combinations of, of desert plants um, and sort of, again, there's a grassland environment, there's a wildflower environment, there's different kinds of environments, and they've even had the opportunity to incorporate um, modern sculpture into the gardens. It's a very, really lovely, lovely example of that. And um, those are probably the two best sort of public uh, spaces in our area that, uh, that I often take clients to just to show them this is this is something we could do even in your own backyard. And that's the uh, the Eric Johnson Memorial Gardens and uh, the Paseo? In, uh, well, in Palm Desert on El Paseo and then the, and then the Living Desert, which is um, in Palm Desert and Indian Wells. They, they sort of share, <laughs> share that. They're, they're, they adjoin each other and they actually both contributed this land back in the early 70s to make this park possible. The, the living desert. Cool. Well, thank you again, Paul. Um, is there any way that people can reach out to you or learn more about your work or maybe even just more about the agency's work? Yeah. Um, my website, which is pretty easy, which is uh, Paul Ortega, uh, at, you know, www.paulortega.com. Uh, and uh, the Desert Water Agency is uh, dwa.org. Um, you can find me in on you know at both places. Um, we will we'll include some links in the uh, show notes. For, um, people can reach out. Paul, thank you very much. You have a good rest of their your weekend. It's Friday. It's uh, time to get the weekend started. Thanks again, Paul. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Yeah.